Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you uh, have your copy of Scripture today, I want to invite you to join me in Exodus chapter 25. As you're turning to Exodus chapter 25, just a, a quick recap of where we have been so far in 2022. This is week 14 of a study we've called Foundations, a journey through the Old Testament. And that is the point of this, is to take a journey through the Old Testament that will last us all of 2022. There may be some weeks like Easter that's coming up in a few weeks and uh, some other days where we break from this, but we're going to come back to it. It's going to be the major theme, and what we're doing is we're journeying through the Old Testament today uh, in continuation of that foundation study. So this is week 14 of 52, right? You got that in your brain? We're just getting started is what I mean to say, and so far we have seen God do some incredible things in Scripture Reminder today that the purpose of preaching, whether it's me or Pastor Chris or some other pastor that may teach you at some point in your life, but the purpose of preaching is to provide spiritual application toward Christ-like transformation. We're not up here to try and just give you information about Jesus. We want to help you put your, your soul, your heart, your mind in a place where you receive what God says and you willingly invest in the relationship that will tomorrow make you more like Christ than you are today. If you want information, read a book. Transformation is what Scripture does, and that's the purpose of why we gather around Scripture today. Also, just a quick reminder that studying the Old Testament, why we are doing this systematically uh, is, again, not about information, but it's to lay a foundation to magnify the gospel. And when we get to the New Testament, it will be clear that God is good and it will magnify the message of Christ uh, and the goodness of God shown to us through the man, Jesus Christ. I want you to think back with me before we read to a time, and I hope it's not a, a time that was long ago, I hope it's recent for you, but think back with me to a time where you clearly felt, where you clearly knew God was present with you in a moment. Think back with me, if you will. Again, I hope, it, maybe it happened in this room at a worship gathering in the past. That's our prayer every week. But maybe it was something different. Maybe you were on a family vacation in the mountains and that's not something you had ever seen and at some point you found yourself overwhelmed by the majesty of God and the grandeur of creation. Maybe, maybe it was at a moment of grief where you knew, you just felt God is here. He is with me. It's something, something happened uh, that you weren't expecting yet you knew. It's in that mindset in that framework today that I bring you this message that I'm just titled The Dwelling Place. Uh, I believe that God still desires to dwell with his people. I, I believe that, and I hope you do too, because there's evidence, clear evidence in scripture that we're going to read today that points to that. So uh, if you would, let me invite you to join me. Uh, would you, let me invite you to stand uh, in honor of God's word as we read from Exodus 25, we're going to read about the first nine verses. 
And then we're going to jump to the New Testament, and you'll see why here in just a minute. But from Exodus 25, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings that you are to receive from them, that's from Israel. Offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram's skins dyed red and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Verse 8 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Keep your thumb there in Exodus 25, because we're going to come back. But jump with me to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says this, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, that's important, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died and as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Let's pray together, friends. God, we come to you today just asking you to speak to us through your word. We know that there is none deserving here, there is none good, but Father, we ask humbly that you would teach us today, that you would instruct our spirits, that you would bring our lives in line with your will, and that you would help us to understand the dwelling place of your presence. Help us to understand the importance of the dwelling place and the joy of the dwelling place of your presence. God, may you fill this room with your spirit. May you guide us in instruction in your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to be seated, friends. As we look at Exodus chapter 25 today, we're going to spend two-thirds of our time uh, in Exodus 25 um, making some, a couple of big, I guess, overarching application points for us that I see from, from Scripture today, and then we're going to make a bunch of small application points. So if, you, if you've got your fill-in-the-blank notes ready, let me invite you to warm your wrist up a little bit, because you, you may take a lot of notes this morning, and that's okay, all right? You've been warned, is all I'm saying. Uh, if you look at where we start, though, in Exodus chapter 25, 
in line with our foundation study, marching through, continuing to march through the book of Exodus, we see something um, incredible happen here in Exodus 25. God promises the establishment of his presence with his people. And this is coming on the, on the heels of several incredible God-ordained moments for the nation of Israel. If you were to rewind, we're not looking at them today, but if you were to rewind to Exodus chapter 19, chapter 20, you see that's right on the heels of God bringing the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt, out of slavery, and he begins to form for himself a people. And in, right in, before this, actually, we pick it up in uh, Exodus 25, verse 1. If you go back to Exodus 24, the, the chapter just previous to 25, you will see that God establishes a covenant and confirms a covenant with the nation of Israel that establishes them the, as a nation. They will no longer be the descendants of Abraham. They will be their own people. And it's not to say that that's, it's just to say that it's different. God made that first covenant to Abraham the man and fulfilled it 100%. Now he is making this covenant with Israel and he communicates to them the framework for the establishment of his presence amongst the people. So as we read in verse two, tell the Israelites, bring me an offering. You're to receive this offering from everyone whose heart prompts them to give what I see in that is, a, is just a reminder of a big biblical truth. It says it here, but it says it in many places of Scripture, and that is this, that all of life is subject to God's sovereignty. All of life, every day, every breath, everything that breathes, everything that is in existence today is because God has sovereignly willed it and if it is sustained into tomorrow, that is still true. All of life, even to this day, is subject to God's sovereignty. Verse 2, the Lord communicates to Moses this, this idea. Tell the Israelites, bring me an offering. Why would, uh, it's worth noting that God, uh, that, that his word is handed down from God, or this word is handed down from God to Moses, and the people immediately following the establishment of the new covenant from Exodus 24 that would establish Israel as a nation. And so keep this in your mind, friends, that God has established this covenant with Israel, and the next thing he says to them is what? Bring me an offering. Bring me an offering. The first invitation to communion with God is always a sacrificial offering. That's true for you and I still today. It begs the question, though. God is establishing his presence through the form of a tabernacle, a tabernacle of tent, or a tent of tabernacles amongst the people. Why would he ask the Israelites to bring an offering? Was God suddenly out of resources? Was the God who spoke creation into existence, all of a sudden not able to command creation? Was the God who just dramatically delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery now unable to summon the supplies to build a structure? I don't know, maybe Heaven's Home Depot was closed that day and he called and they said, we can't get the supplies. No, no, God is not 
needing of anything that we have, right, friends? He's not needing, uh, he doesn't need us for anything. But what does this do? It highlights for us the truth, a big uh, biblical truth for us today. It's seen in many places throughout Scripture that God usually chooses for whatever reason, for his good purposes, but for whatever reason, that God usually chooses to work through the resources of those who love him. He, you can see it over and over, right? You can see it here. The Lord said to Moses, tell my people, bring me an offering. Many times over the years here at Coastal Oaks Church, we have asked you to pray and to bring an offering for various things, usually building type things, right? And you may get an op- another opportunity to do that in 2022, in this season, to finish out our gym. Don't really know what that looks like yet. But the invitation is always there, right? Pray and, and bring an offering. By the way, this is not a giving message. This is not about money. It's bigger than that. This truth highlights for us the pattern shown throughout Scripture. And I don't understand why God chooses to do it, but I'm grateful that he invites us in, that he invites us in. Notice what verse 2 says, though. The second part there, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. This is an incredible statement made revealing both the eternal kindness of God and the focus of adoration for mankind. Think of it like this. Like uh, at the beginning of our time today, at the beginning of most of our times in God's word, someone stands in front of you and invites you to do what? To open your Bibles. We don't have deacons or bouncers that walk the aisles to make sure that you're opening your Bible, right? And you're engaged. It's an invitation. But participation, following the invitation, it it paints a picture, right? It paints a picture of what your intent, what my intent, what the Israelites' intent in following God is. I use a, this week I used an online commentary from an organization called Enduring Word to help prepare for this morning. Enduring Word is a free full Bible commentary that's online. You can just Google it, Enduring Word. So if, if you're looking for some resources where you can go deeper in study, that, that's a good one for you. Enduring Word says this about 20, uh, Exodus 25 too. God only wanted contributions from those who were willing to give them. He was not then and he is not now interested in coerced, manipulated, or forced gifts This invitation that God gives in Exodus 25, verse two, where he says, tell the Israelites, bring me an offering, receive the offering from everyone whose heart prompts them to give is most assuredly a test of the covenant from Exodus 24, the chapter before, where God confirms with Israel that he will dwell with them within the framework of faithfulness, right? It's always within the framework of faithfulness. But then he says to them, what? Bring me an offering. I don't know if you've seen this in movies. I've never seen it in real life, but I've seen it in some movies over the the years where um, 
couples who are in love. I don't know what brings them to this point, but um, there, there's uh, sometimes a discourse between a husband and wife in, in you know, cinematography, and it sounds like this, do you still love me? Now, let me tell you this, friends, if you're a spouse and you hear those words come from your spouse, don't brush them aside. That's important. You need to answer that. It's okay. But that's what I hear when I, when I read these words from Exodus 25 and verse 2. It's not tell the Israelites. It's tell the Israelites. Bring me an offering. Let's solidify this covenant through the offering. Participants in this offering, they are painting a clear picture of priority. They are telling the world they are currently believing in God's provision. You have to do that to some extent to bring any sort of offering. If I'm going to give this away, then that means God is going to provide something in its place. Or not, but either way, I'm still trusting in God. Participants in this offering, they are keenly aware of his presence. They are aware of the, the, the covenant that has been confirmed here. They adore him. Think about this, participation in this offering for the Israelites. It, it's a willing offering, right? Not everyone is going to participate. But the ones who do are saying to whoever sees them participate in this offering, that they are prioritizing the relationship with God. They adore him. They are content to rely on him daily. There is a sense, I believe, friends, of worship and faithful love that is being reciprocated back to God in this by anyone who participates. And I would say to you today, friends, that the invitation for us is, is very similar that all of your life, all of my life is still subject to God's sovereignty. All of it. If you're blessed to live, you know, on into what people consider old age these days, guess what? In those days, your life is still subject to God's sovereignty. Every breath that we breathe, every heartbeat that God puts in our chest and sustains from day to day is subject to to his sovereignty. Why would God ask Israel? Remember, Israel, they are a nomadic people still at this point, right? They have just come through the drama of the Exodus event where they walked through the Red Sea. And then the sea closed up and swallowed the army of Pharaoh. They have nothing except what the Egyptians gave them, paid them basically to leave so that the Egyptians wouldn't have to experience the plagues anymore. Remember that? That's what they have. And now God has required them to bring an offering. Why at this point in the story? Well, I think it's for the same reasons that we already talked about. To paint a clear picture for every, that everything belongs to God. Still true today. To undergird the biblical truth that God's people must rely on him daily. I cannot remember if it was last week or the week before where Pastor Chris was preaching and he was preaching through the, the part of the book of Exodus that talked about the daily distribution of food that was for the Israelites. Do you remember this? It was the daily distribution of manna, the daily distribution of quail. But it was daily, right? They had specific instructions to gather, to consume, and then to discard anything that was left over. 
And there was only one day of the seven which they were permitted to gather for two days. And that was because it was the day before the Sabbath and God was trying to teach them to keep the Sabbath holy, to keep it separate so that there would be no work on that day. So on the day before the Sabbath, you gather for that day and the Sabbath day so you don't have to work. We must rely on him daily, amen? I hope you know that. I hope you know that, friends. We don't ever, on this side of heaven, we're not ever gonna know a day where we don't have to rely on him for something. That's what it means to be his people. Another reason might be to remind Israel that God alone is the source of their provision. They would have these things that they got from the Egyptians, but, but I think it undergirds this truth here. God's reminding them, hey, I am going to provide everything you need. I am the source of what you need. It would also focus their attention and adoration on God alone. Several other places in Scripture uphold this idea that all of life is subject to God's sovereignty. If you're taking notes this morning, you might write these verses in the blanks around uh, your, maybe on your fill-in-the-blank sheet or maybe in in Scripture if you want to do that. Uh, Psalm 24.1, you hear this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then after this verse in Psalm 24.1, it describes some specific things to undergird, to paint the picture of God's sovereign will over all things. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50, verses nine and 10, the psalmist says this, I have no need of a bull from your stall or a goat from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. All of life is subject to God's sovereignty. We get to jump over to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter nine. You see this again the heart of God. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, can you fill in the blank here? A cheerful giver, right? You know that verse. Speaking to the heart of the giver, God has invited us to be a part. He's invited us also to bring an offering to establish his presence amongst his people. Three uh, sub-points, I guess, this morning under the, under the heading, all of life is subject to God's sovereignty. But I wanna point these out to you, that God's heart is shown through the invitation to sacrifice. God's heart is shown through the invitation to sacrifice. And God's heart, listen to me, friends, God's heart is not you better. God's heart is will you. That's what we see. Verse two, receive the offering from everyone whose heart is prompted to give. You hear it in 2 Corinthians chapter nine. Give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God's heart is shown through the invitation to sacrifice. Secondly, though, a covenant relationship with God starts with a sacrificial offering. But that's just the beginning point. The ultimate goal is sanctuary. It's his abiding presence. For Israel, what we have read here today was the establishment of a physical place, a structure 
that would represent God's presence amongst their nation. A literal holy place. For us, it's different. We'll get there in just a second. Lastly, though, before we move on in Exodus 25, I want you to see this, friends, that faithful love to God embodies a summative offering reflective of our lives. If you don't like the word summative there, it's, it's a math word. Um, I had to look it up, honestly, but I think it fits. Um, maybe you might like the word cumulative, something that depicts your whole life. It can't be, it can't be just a sliver. I get the feeling sometimes that, that we treat our relationship with Jesus and we think it's okay. We, we treat our relationship with Jesus like the salt and pepper shaker, like if you cook something at home and you totally mess it up, right? You can just put a little salt and pepper on it and it makes it palatable. I get the feeling that sometimes that's how we approach this life, that it's, it's not palatable, so we're gonna sprinkle a little Jesus on it. Maybe we can choke it down. That's not the picture that God has for us. All of life is subject to God's sovereignty. Today, tomorrow, every day in the future, every day in the past. Secondly, though, from Exodus chapter 25, I want you to see this, that the abiding presence of Christ is central in the life of the man of God. My note, I messed my notes up a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to read what's on the screen for that, all right? The abiding presence of Christ is central in the life of the man of God. Notice what verse 8, where again, we're back in Exodus 25, 8 says this, then have them make a sanctuary for me. This is after the offering. This is after the covenant has been confirmed. This is after the exodus has started, uh, delivery from Egyptian slavery. Uh, it's just a succession of events here that God says, make a sanctuary for me, and there's an incredible promise, I will dwell with them. At this point in Israel's history, God's dwelling with them has been uh, distant. It's been in a pillar of fire during the nighttime. It's been in a pillar of cloud during the day. But in establishing this sanctuary, God comes close to his people. This sanctuary would not confine, it would not bind, it would not limit God's presence, but it would represent it within Israel as a central tenet of their daily life, of their faith and trusting God. And it would represent it in other nations. God's design for the tabernacle was for it to be a central structure in the layout of the land. I don't know about you, I grew up in a small town in north central Texas, still there today. It had an old town square, like brick streets and old buildings and downtown, guess what you find? In downtown Leonard, Texas. Anybody ever heard of Leonard, Texas? Yeah, I didn't think so. Leonard, Texas, guess what you find? You find City Hall. You find the post office. At one time, the high school was down there. there there's a bank that's empty now. It still says bank, First National Bank of Leonard on the building. It hasn't been inhabited for years, but, but all of the important things were centrally located in the establishment of many small towns across this nation. And for the, for, for the Israelites, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, was that as well. We can look to historical evidence as to the position, the literal foundation of the sanctuary in the building of the nation. At this point in Israel's 
uh, history, what they're building is a tent. If you want to read ahead a little bit, you can look in Exodus chapter 26. You get all of the detail for the building of the tabernacle, but you see over and over it uses words like curtains and supports and things like that. And the idea is that this is a, it's, it's a tent of tabernacle. It's not a brick and mortar building. That wouldn't come until the time of Solomon, many, many generations later. And in fact, in this day where the Israelites are building this tent that would represent the presence of God, there's some reasons behind that, friends. Remember, they they don't know it yet, but God is doing something in them. He is building in them a nation, and he is in the midst of taking them to a place that would be called the promised land to establish borders for them as a nation. They're not there yet. So the presence of God has got to be mobile. It's got to go with them. Incredible imagery with that as well. The importance is clear, I believe, though, at this point in the story that the sanctuary, whatever it looked like for Israel, was a foreshadowing of what would come through Jesus the Messiah. What we are reading in Exodus chapter 25 today is not applicable to us as Gentiles. It's historical, but there's not salvation here. You understand what I'm saying, friends? We're reading the historical uh, documentation of how God established some things, mainly his presence. But today, for us, it is different. The abiding presence of Christ is central in the life of the man of God. You know, I have never been to the Holy Land. I've never visited. I've never, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know that I'll ever be able to afford to go to the Holy Land. I just don't know. If I ever got the chance to go, I would hope that it would be an incredible experience to be able to walk on the same streets as the disciples, to see some of the important things that we're, that, that, that that we're going to read about as we continue in our foundation study over the next few weeks. But here's the, here's the ultimate truth here, friends. If me or if you, if we never get to visit the Holy Land, everything we need, we have in Christ Jesus. Everything. Everything we need, we have in Christ Jesus. Did you know that to this day, God still desires to dwell with his people? Did you know that? You should know that, friends. God still desires to dwell with his people. He still desires to see eternal, internal transformation happen through faith in Christ. And I would say to us clearly today that what glorifies God most is to see men and women, boys and girls of all backgrounds, all cultures, be conformed and be transformed into the image of Christ. God's power, and I think we need to say that we need to hear this today as the church. It's easy to be jaded when you look at you know, the perceived state of affairs in our nation. And it's not new. It just doesn't seem to be getting better, right? Listen, friends, that's not the point. The power of God is still able to change men's heart, no matter their record of sinfulness, unfaithfulness, 
And we've got to believe that. If God's people don't believe that, then guess what? The world is not going to see it. After Jesus' death and resurrection, we're not going to read it today, but you know the story well. God's dwelling place moved. It moved from the sanctuary, the tabernacle. It moved to the heart of the faithful. And I'm grateful for that, y'all. I'm grateful. A couple of places that I would like to point out in Scripture that support this idea that the abiding presence of Christ is central in the life of the man of God. Psalm 34, verse 15 says this, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Not just fixed on the righteous, but looking for the righteous. There's an active principle here. His ears always open, always listening to their cry. I want to spend a moment, though, with John chapter 1. Perhaps you're familiar with these verses. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Maybe you're familiar with that. But you get to John 1, 14, and it says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It's okay to write in your Bible, friends, and so I would encourage you, if you've got your copy of Scripture open there to uh, John 1.14, you should circle that word, dwelling, and then make a little note out in the side that says Exodus 25.8, because the word used in Exodus 25.8, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And the word that is in John 1.14 are essentially the same word. God does us a tremendous kindness here by connecting the two. In the mind of the Israelite, the the word, they're they're a little bit different. The word for sanctuary in Exodus 25.8 would have brought to mind a physical place, an address. And Jesus comes on the scene and John records it so faithfully for us that the word became flesh and made his tabernacle his sanctuary among us, among the faithful. Direct connection back to where we are. The great preacher D.A. Carson said this about John 1.14. The implication from John here is that God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in the most personal way, in the babe born in a manger. I know we only talk about that at Christmas, but it's still true, right? In the man from Galilee, in the Son of God, in the Word made flesh, so that Christ is central in all of life. A couple more places that I'd like to point out to you, just some uh, auxiliary scripture here for you. Uh, Acts, uh, excuse me, Acts 4.12. Uh, Salvation is found in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's pretty clear, right, friends? Christ is to be central in the man of God's life. And then Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, that's Christ. Christ has made the first one, which is the one we're reading about from Exodus 24 and Exodus 25. He has made the first one obsolete. So maybe you're here today and you would say, Andy, okay, I get that, but where does one find God's presence? 
I, think it's, I don't think it's as hidden as we think, friends. I would encourage you along these lines. Firstly, that God's presence is realized at the moment of faith. When a man or a woman trusts Christ as Savior, the Bible teaches that the Spirit indwells that person, and that person's heart becomes the home of God. It's at the moment. Now, and, and, and listen to me. That moment is the beginning of a process called sanctification that consumes the rest of the life of that person. But it begins there. It begins at the moment of faith. Secondly, see this, that God's presence is grafted into the struggles of life. I hope you have known this, not because I wish suffering upon you, but I hope that you have experienced the presence of God in struggles and in suffering in your life. Let me tell you, friends, that's where it gets real. We can gather and we can sing happy, happy, joy songs about Jesus and love on each other and shake hands and bump fists and do all that stuff, but if you don't know the presence of Christ in the struggles of this life, you're missing out on a major blessing, major blessing. Thirdly, God's presence is only known when it is central, when it is primary, when it rules, when it is preeminent, if you want to think of it in different terms there. God's presence, he's so gracious to us, friends. When Christ is the boss of our life, then Christ becomes central. We know his presence because we have one focus. Fourthly, and probably most clearly today, God's covenant with man, that's us. God's current covenant with man is 100% fulfilled, completed in Jesus Christ. We're not waiting on anything else, friends. We're not looking for another sign. We are resting in the completed work of Christ, 100% fulfilled, God's covenant to us in Jesus Christ. Jump with me, if you will, over to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We're going to spend just a couple of minutes here before we wrap up our time today. And we do this just to hopefully hammer home for you this idea that the dwelling place of God's presence for us is in the life of a believer, is in the heart of a believer. So Hebrews chapter 9 We're not going to read verses 1 through 10, but I would encourage you at some point to go back and read Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. There's some very clear connections between the old covenant and what is changing under Christ's rule, under the covenant that Christ's blood seals for the believer. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, we read this, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, it is not a part of this creation. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And listen to this. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Thank God. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Last thing I would love for you to take home today is this thought, this idea, what I believe is true. God's pursuit is the heart of mankind in Christ. We saw it in the invitation to sacrifice, right? Back in Exodus 25 too, bring an offering, receive the offering from anyone whose heart is prompted to give. We see that in the abiding presence of God made manifest in the sanctuary and for, for the Israelite, but at the same time for us in the abiding presence of Christ, such a blessing there. Let me say this to us today, friends. Temples, statues, monuments, campuses, worship centers, etc., etc., etc. That is not what he desires. Those may be necessary to facilitate some things, but that's not what brings him most glory. What brings him most glory is the heart of a man, the heart of a woman that is submitted to him, that is fully committed each day to living for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice what is said here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ came as the high priest, that means something is changing. When Christ came, but when Christ, it's an interjection, right? It's been this way, Christ came, now it's going to be a new way. The blood, verses 13 and 14, the blood sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. There's that denotion there. This is an outward thing. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences? You know where your conscience is, right? It's not like your elbow. It's not like your knee. It, it's, it's a part of your soul. It's a part of who we are internally. And, and friends, listen to me. That's what God is interested in. Bring your offering, yeah, do that. Lift a sacrifice of praise. But God wants your heart. And he's not gonna be satisfied with anything short of that. God was glorified in Israel's commitment to himself as a nation and glorified in his tabernacle. But listen, friends, he is now much more glorified in making his dwelling within the hearts of the faithful. He has always desired the heart of mankind. It was never about the building. It was never about the building. It was about the presence. Many places would support this idea as well in Scripture, friends, that God's pursuit is the heart of mankind in Christ. You hear it in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. You hear it in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. But what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, with your God. He's, he's interested in your heart, friends. 
You see it in the crucifixion story in Matthew chapter 27, where at the moment of Jesus' death, when he breathed his last breath, that the curtain of the temple, which previously disguised the presence, it previously hid the presence of God from the nation of Israel. This temple, this, this curtain that, that did that was torn at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, at the moment of his death, and it was torn in a specific manner from top to bottom, according to what Matthew 27, 51 says. A lot of symbolism there for us. God did a great thing. And God did, be, be, be certain of this, friends, that God did it. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you hear this idea as well. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You hear it also in places like Galatians chapter 5, we know these as the fruit of the Spirit verses. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, literally that could be translated the proof of God's presence. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. My translation says forbearance, but you could call that patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such thing, there is no law. And friends, there will never be a law against those things. That's what it means. That's the proof, the fruit of the indwelling of God. A couple of things, just some summary statements before we wrap up here. Outward exercises of faith do not equate to the submission of a man's will. I would say, I would probably add a word to that. I would say outward exercises of faith do not automatically equate to the submission of a man's will. We can come, friends, we can gather, we can love on each other well, we can sing loud. But listen to me. It, it's gotta be bigger than that. The gospel will be known in Aransas County when there is an abiding sense of God's presence within the heart of his people. We're here for an hour every week. You live most of your life away from this place. Our gathering, most of the people in Aransas County don't even know we're here today, y'all. Right? That's not the point. They will hear the gospel when it is so embedded in your life but that's what they see. Number two, the covenant of God's people today is only, and you can circle that word only if you want to, is only the blood of Christ. It's not anything else. Everything that we need is satisfied in Jesus Christ. Everything that we need for salvation is satisfied at the cross. Everything that we need for hope in this life also satisfied in the man, Jesus Christ. Lastly, and, and this is just for maybe the cynic that might be out there that might hear this type of a message and, and think, man, you spent a lot of time in this last point talking about us and, and how God indwells his people. And uh, let me push back on that in love just a little bit. That's not my goal. My goal is not to make 
mankind the hero of the story here. That's Jesus Christ. So I want to say it clearly like this. The dwelling place is never the object of worship. It's not the temple, whether it's a structure or a person. The dwelling place is never the object of worship. The one who dwells within is. It's got to be about Christ, friends. It's got to be about his abiding presence in our lives. It's not about me. It's not about uh, anything that, that you or I would do. But Christ lived out in the life of the church is a powerful testimony. God desires, I would say this to us clearly, friends, as we wrap up, God desires to dwell amongst his people. He desires to dwell in your life. But literally within your life by faith in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, when Christ dwells within a man, he transforms that man and he makes him look more like himself, makes him look more like Christ. When Christ dwells within the heart of a man, there is clear external evidence flowing out from that indwelling. You, you know this. You know this. If there is evidence that a man, is, his presence is centered on Christ, there's clear evidence. We should seek that. The covenant relationship with God today still starts with a sacrifice. But listen, friends, the sacrifice that is required, Jesus has already paid. All you need to do, all we need to do today is receive the gift. Maybe you're here today and you would, you, you would uh, understand that, that what you need to do is that starting point. You need to make the decision today to commit your life to Christ, to confess your sins, to move in obedience through baptism. Maybe today that's not you, but you would be willing to commit or to recommit to live out the days that God has given you, leading others joyfully into reconciliation with God through the message of the gospel. This is the purpose of the church. Let's pray today, friends.